Colonel Matthew James is the commander of the 81st Striker Brigade Combat Team. He's a known force in the Washington National Guard and a familiar voice on this podcast. He began his career as an active duty infantry officer before transitioning to the AGR program in our state. In this episode, we delve into his command philosophy, lessons learned from years of service, and what lays ahead for the members of the 81st Striker Brigade Combat Team. Let's get after it. We have a professional obligation for the ethical application of, uh, of force. You can have a growth mindset where you're always achieving for better. This is about us, about our guard, our reputation. We are all in this together. Outthink, outmaneuver, and outfight the enemy. If you wage war, do it energetically and with severity. This is the only way to make it shorter and consequently less inhumane. All right, thanks for joining us again. I'm Chaplain Sanders, and I am on with uh, Raven 6, Colonel Matt James uh, today, somebody that y'all probably would uh, know and know or at least know about and most likely would recognize. We want to try to uh, get in uh, to your head, sir, and your history and kind of figure out who you, who you are. So welcome to the show. Hey, th- thanks, Brandon. I appreciate it. I appreciate the series. Uh, you know, we owe all the credit to you for setting this up and having so many great guests on. And we look forward to, to more great guests in the future. Absolutely, sir. Yeah, well, I guess to, to get us going, uh, before we get really too far into uh, kind of like reflecting over uh, what the, the two generals had, had to say, well, let's just kind of get to know you. Um, so, like, a, uh, I, I know I've been in – I came into the Washington National Guard in your brigade and, or in your battalion and, and met you there, but I don't think that we've ever really kind of, kind of got to know each other's uh, history. So, so how, did you, uh, how did you end up in the Army? <laughs> um. Yeah, so after undergrad, I went to law school, and I had really enjoyed undergrad. I enjoyed the academics in undergrad, and when I got to law school, I was not enjoying the academics. I had recently been exposed to some uh, military officers. Uh, I didn't have a lot of uh, military influence growing up, and I was just really curious about it, and I was thinking, well, if I'm I'm not enjoying school, let's give this a shot, and I went and... uh, Got a college option packet for OCS and went to basic and commissioned a few days later and here I am. Well, that's pretty interesting. I I, I would have never uh, pegged you to be to have been interested in uh, law school, but it actually kind of makes a little bit of sense. What did you do your undergrad in? Uh, international studies. No, oh, okay, okay, all right. That, that that even makes more sense, right? So, was, was there a particular officer that like uh, inspired you? you? Said like you were kind of exposed to him. Is there one that that you were like? that that stands out amongst the others uh well my uncle i lived in the state of washington my uncle lived in florida so i didn't see him that often but he had been a navy pilot and my few touch points with him i just really enjoyed hearing his stories about his career in the navy as a pilot and then um in undergrad i'd had some friends in rotc and i just hadn't been exposed to that i didn't know what that was when i was in high school and by the time I got kind of interested, you know, as a senior, you know, I thought it was a little bit too late uh, to pursue that route at that time. So I went on with the uh, the law school route and then circled back thinking, well, this is as good a time as, as any to uh, try the Army out. Well, there you go. So, and you went straight into the active, active duty, right? You didn't go to the National Guard originally. That, that's true. I did uh, 10 years in active duty. I started at Fort Drum, New York, 10th Mountain, and then I... Um, Went to the career course and then a PCS to JBLM, Fort Lewis. And um, and then after about 10 years in active duty, I, I joined the National Guard. Where, uh, what unit were you in in uh, Fort Drum? 214 Infantry uh, Golden Dragons. 
Right, right, right. Yeah, uh, I didn't. I, I, that's another thing I didn't know. I, didn't, I don't think I ever knew that you were on drum. I was over at, at um, on the airfield at, with three seventeen calf. Yep. So, um, like, uh, while while you were on active duty, you deployed a couple of times, correct? We went to Kosovo from Fort Drum, and then we went to Iraq twice from JBLN. Oh, okay, cool. Right. So, um, what parts of Iraq were you in? Uh, the first deployment was mainly Mosul, and then the second deployment was Mosul, Baghdad, a little bit in Anbar, and then we finished out in Bakuba. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, and like uh, you were there during the surge too, because I remember we had a, had a had a brief conversation that we were in country about the same time, if I remember right. Yeah, we did a full fifteen months over there. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so you get back to JBLM and like you decide that you're going to like get out of the army. So like what kind of led to that decision? Well, in my, in my personal life, I was uh, getting divorced and I had two young sons and I did not want to keep PCSing away from them. So I was, I was looking actually at all kinds of civilian jobs and I just kind of stumbled into uh, the Washington National Guard website, AGR program. And I applied for a couple jobs, not, uh, not knowing that that was going to be my, the rest of my career and, and, and got one of those with the civil support team and just kind of went from there. That is kind of a, a unique opportunity that um, I've seen like several officers kind of enter that way that, that they do their thing on active duty and then they find the AGR program and it seems to, to do well. It's definitely done well uh, for you, I'd say. It's one of the best kept secrets in the army is the, the full-time active guard reserve. Right, I agree. So, um, uh, so you get in the Washington National Guard. What was your first assignment with us? Well, I was with the uh, the civil support team as their operations officer. I did about three and a half years over there. And my my commander, um, you know, knew about my infantry background, and we were doing mostly seaburn, uh, you know, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear response type stuff. And uh, she introduced me to the G three at the time, Colonel Greg Allen. He sat me down for a couple of hours, got my my life story and more, and then pre pretty soon he was saying, "Yep, we're going to send you over to the 81st." <laughs> well, there you go. Right. That's kind of uh, interesting, just like uh, to see the uh, the the amount of impact that uh, Colonel Allen seems to have had on the organization, because like he's he, he's taking you you in uh, whenever you're you're first coming in, and now you're uh, I guess basically sitting in a very similar seat uh, that uh, that he was in at the time. Just kind of like you've come full circle. So. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely a maven, uh, the kind of person who just uh, has connections, meets people, meets more people. Uh, tries to help them get to places he thinks they should go or where they want to go. And, you know, I learned a lot from that, uh, watching him and uh, trying to get people's story and trying to help them uh, navigate their path or to develop a path. Right, right. So, um, so you mentioned like you end up in the 81st and uh, uh, now you're at the, uh, the 81st uh, command. Um what's the, what's the brigade been like over the, over the course of, you know, all those years? Like, how has it changed? Well, the biggest change is it was a armored brigade combat team, an ABCT, when I got there. And then around 2015, 16, 17, we transitioned to a striker brigade combat team. So the focus really moved from, you know, mechanized forces to, to infantry forces. Right. It Like, um, I've always wondered, like, so I've never been in a mechanized unit before. Is there like a, a, a drastic culture difference between like, <clears throat> the, your infantry uh, kind of world and then like the mechanized world? 
Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you an example um, for, for an armor officer, or I should say a, a enlisted armor uh, soldier in the National Guard. They can go from E1 to E7 in the same company on the same tank. Uh, so, oh, they, wow. they, so they become you know, very uh, protective of that tank, that platform and of their, uh, their job. And they, they know everything about that tank because there's, there's four of them on it, that four man crew, four person crew. Uh, and they can stay there a long time together and build a lot of proficiency. Whereas, you know, with the with the strikers, you're you're sometimes you're in the infantry squad, sometimes you're on the staff, sometimes you're you know in the scouts or the mortars. Uh, there's a lot more changes that normally take place in your career. Right, which I guess like uh, it would have its own advantages and disadvantages. I can only imagine like the uh, like if you had a good you know uh, you know tank crew you're going to be like really, really super tied in with those guys, be really, really uh, proficient. But the the downside of that is, is that like, if you're on a bad tank crew, then like <laughs> if there's no mobility or, or anything, it's kind of on you to change it. And if, if, if you're not being very effective at it, then that's just going to be a bad tank crew. But I guess on the flip side, the, the on the infantry side of the house, um, it's the, you can kind of flip that, like you can have a really a good, you know, working team and then it gets, you know, shuffled around so much that you kind of kill it. But at the same time, the elements of that good working team get spread out across the the whole formation. Is that kind of like a good read on that? You know, yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll say something pretty simple here, but on, on either side, armor or striker, it's all about your NCOs and their continuity. And when you have NCOs that understand the platform, they can train, the new soldiers to to be drivers, to be gunners, uh, to be dismounts, you know, whatever whatever the uh, the role is, the, the NCOs are really the key. Right, it makes sense. So, um, kind of uh, transitioning, uh, we sat down and talked to uh, uh, Major Major General or uh, Win Burkett, uh, who's our division commander, um, and that was that's been some time. So, do you have any kind of like reflections on that conversation? Yes, his perspective as a division commander and the army being uh, full throttle on large scale combat operations, the roles and tasks of the of the division uh, growing so much in the last couple of years, kind of back to I don't know twenty or thirty years ago, he has to have a really wide <laughs> view of the of the battlefield. Meaning, you know, he's shaping, trying to shape so many things for the brigades that are fighting for him. Uh, in order to have success, it's a it's a much broader scope than say a, a brigade commander like myself. Right, uh, that makes sense. Yeah, like uh, I didn't, I, I don't think I, I had an appreciation for like how large the division was until we sat down and, and talked to him and how many different kind of focuses that it could have. Um, at, sitting in, in a, a brigade brigade commander's uh, chair, like what do you what what's our relationship with them actually like look like? Yeah, so I, I can I can reach out to them for for mentorship or questions. I can um, try to uh, get them to help us with resources at certain times, all kinds of resources. Uh, but I think one of the, the biggest goals of our of our relationship is talent management. Meaning, you know, when we have people who maybe like yourself, even living in Texas or near Texas, mm -hmm. um, want to drill a division staff and kind of see the differences and get that experience in their career. A as in a division versus a brigade or a battalion, uh, then there, there's those opportunities there for us to send uh, soldiers, you know, to drill there um, on weekends, uh, AT, maybe even to do deploy with them. 
Oh, wow. Right. So are those like uh, active like positions like right now that like they were looking to send people down there to uh, to Austin to kind of get the division experience? Yeah. And I think it's 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 good. It always changes with time. But, you know, they might need a chaplain right now or they might need help in their G2 shop or they might need help in their G5 shop. It just kind of depends on on what the need is as far as uh, the, the fits we might have. And it could be any MLS or branch, just depending on what they're short on at the time. Okay. And I guess that like being able to go down there and, and see how the, uh, how the division works um, whenever you actually kind of come back to the brigade, you're going to like have a, a bigger picture and like be able to kind of like set us in, in the correct place. Like whenever you're planning uh, to understand how like we contribute to the, to the bigger fight. 100%. Right now, all of our staff exercises and, simulations are, are geared to us working under a division and so the better you understand what that division can do and what it's supposed to do uh, the better we can build our own plan uh, within the, the bigger plan to achieve success that makes sense so like with with that in mind like um what do you feel like the the, the future of the the brigade looks like going forward Cause, like we have a lot of junior soldiers that that will listen to this i'm sure they're kind of curious from your chair what is you know the next like you know year or 5 years or 10 years uh, look like for the 81st yeah so we have the national training center in 2026 that we're going to go do a rotation in and that's a that's a big deal it's one of the, the army's biggest ways of building readiness um, for potential deployments or mobilizations the year prior to that 25 we'll, we'll do the exportable combat training center which is kind of a a, a run up uh, to prepare you for it for NTC, it's a it's a lower scale event, but still with uh, bringing in lots of different kinds of units for the brigade to work with, uh, and to try to work as a brigade rather than a lot of our typical annual trainings, which might be at the company or platoon level. Uh, we're going to a higher echelon for XCTC in preparation for the National Training Center, and then after that, we're looking at some opportunities in the Pacific, um, annual training opportunities, not a not a, a deployment or a mobilization, but um, whether it's Thailand or Malaysia or the Philippines, we're looking at a bunch of exercises to get our, our battalions on. So like, would that be like kind of like Cobra Gold, like we, we did this uh, past year or would it be something, you know, different? No, Cobra Gold, Hanuman Guardian, uh, Balakatan, um, maybe Talisman Saber in Australia. We're looking at all kinds of options. Okay. And I guess like the, the intent behind that is that like we're looking at, at a, a potential threat in in like in the Pacific rather than like say going back to like Poland or Europe or, or the Middle East is that kind of the, the thought process? Yeah, I think our, our our nation tries to have a continuous presence in as many friendly nations as, as possible, and so that we when we can demonstrate projecting our force out um, to the islands anywhere in the Pacific or on the mainland uh, in Asia. That's uh, you know it's, it, it serves as as a deterrent and as a um, a stabilizer for our, our allied nations. Right. Yeah. And, and talking to uh, General Jensen, like one of the kind of big takeaways, at least for me, from that conversation was his uh like idea of generational readiness. And so if you look at like kind of the plan, just like that, like you have twenty five, we do XETC, and twenty six NTC, and then like twenty seven, what could be like a uh, you know a human guardian or or whatever Cobra Gold. Um, that like a uh, you're 
when you sign up for the National Guard, you're not just going to sit in the armory. You're you turn around and you're going to have like all these types of experiences, and every single one of those those you know like summer events that that you end up going to, like it's going to uh, grow you probably as much or even more some in some ways as a, an active duty soldier. Um, so it's it's cool to see that's the the direction the brigade is is heading in. Yeah, to 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 hit on generational radius. You know, those soldiers who, who go, th go through those three years for the rest of their careers, you know, they will learn so much field craft. They'll learn about some of our partner nations. They'll get an experience overseas. They'll get, um, they'll get to use their equipment that entire time. And, and so the idea being that, you know, when they stay in, then they can share those experiences with the, the younger folks and share all that they've learned and all those proficiencies they've gained from having experienced, say, a National Training Center rotation. Right. No, that, that makes sense. And definitely kind of, uh, it fulfills the promise of, of like, hey, look, if you want to go, uh, you know, see the world and, ha and have an adventure, well, then like you're actually delivering that rather than, you know, just sitting in an armory or, or just going to the same flat ranges over and over again. It definitely makes being in the National Guard a lot more exciting than historically it, it you know, has been. Yes. So and there, there are limited National Training Center rotations for Guard units. And so for us to get one in 26 is not super common. Uh, so it's a real opportunity, again, to, to, to build that generational radius, to, to, to gain that experience, to actually operate as a brigade rather than, you know, platoons and companies, which is, which is great. I mean, that, those are the building blocks. That's what we need to be good at first. But when we get a chance to build, then in 26, if, if, the, if the nation needs us, um, they, they could change plans. They could send us just about anywhere because we're as, about as ready as we could ever get um, after that National Training Center rotation. Right. Uh, that make, makes a lot of sense. Uh, so um, looking that down the road, so it's 2023 now. So like the you know, first kind of big, big event would be XETC in 25. What needs to be happening right now so that way we can be ready uh, to not only just show up and, and, and do well, but also be ready to, uh, you know, identify our weaknesses and our strengths and, and take away uh, lessons learned. Yeah. And I would say for, for most years when we're not building towards a national training center uh, ro rotation, it's always about the squads and the platoons uh, building lethal squads, lethal platoons, proficient staffs, uh, understanding how to use your enablers or your, your other units, how to employ the engineers or the signal company uh, how to sustain operations at scale. Uh, but it really goes back to really, really proficient squads and platoons. And I feel like in the National Guard, we can get after that pretty much every year based on the training days and the resources. Right. So when we uh, when we talked to, uh, to General McChrystal, um, like you had, you had like kind of like one question that, that you wanted to, to get after and was that like if, if you had to – to have the same type of training days that, that we have and the resources that, that we have, like what would, what would asking him, like what would be the the basics that, um, that, you know, he, he would like want to focus on um, now after having had that conversation and talking to uh, some of these, these other, other individuals, what would you say like the answer to that question is? Well, if I, if I heard you right, it's, Kind of what I was just talking about. It's it's really that squad and platoon proficiency, know, knowing and understanding your equipment, knowing and understanding your role uh, within those units, w whatever level you're at, whether you're a rifleman or a platoon sergeant or a platoon leader, 
and and for the staffs um, having exercised uh, exercises or missions where you're employing uh, different types of units that may be attached to understanding uh, units to your left and right and what they're doing and why they're doing it and why it's important for what you're doing. And then, you know, who you're working for and what the overall, the higher level objectives are. Right. That, that makes sense. Just kind of having a, a overall, like, uh, you know, awareness of, of what you're capable of, what, what your enablers are capable of and then employing them correctly. Um, so, kind of shifting gears on it like you've uh, how, how many how long have you been in the national guard or well in the army 25 years <laughs> wow and so that's that, that's quite a uh, a career and so if um if you were to, to sit down with like a brand new uh lieutenant that was you know it was matt james all those years ago what would you want want them to know so that way they could be successful both you know just as an officer as an individual and then as a leader yeah. So, so one thing I haven't touched upon is, is during this collective training we've been discussing, it's imperative that we continue to send soldiers and officers to their professional, professional military education to continue to go to those army schools that will help you understand the next level up. And so what I would tell that Lieutenant um, is that you're going to go to your, your basic officer leader course, your Bullock. But after that, whatever branch you are, you want to try to continue to get as many schools as you can, early on. And so for an infantry guy, that might be infantry, I'm sorry, uh, ranger, airborne, uh, maybe a striker leader course, you know, some other, other schools, because you may not get another opportunity in your career, in your guard career to go uh, just based on time, you know, your family, your civilian job, wh whatever you're stepping into. And so that's the first thing I would say is whether you're at Fort Moore or Fort Sill, uh, wh wherever your, your, your Bullock source is, Stay there as long as possible. Get as many Army schools as possible because those, those are some of the credentials that you may not have an opportunity to get later. Uh, following on from that, you know, you get to your unit and you're the lieutenant. You need to lean on your, your platoon sergeants, your E7s, your E6s. Uh, those are the folks who have been doing the job in, in that platoon, whatever that job is. And they're going to be your best teachers, instructors for how that unit is supposed to work. Uh, whereas your 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 officers above you oftentimes we, you know, working on giving you the opportunities, giving you the training opportunities uh, to take some chances, to take some risks in training. Um, I don't mean risks to health, but uh, risks in, you know, trying things different ways. And when you fail, that's okay. That's another thing I would tell them is it's okay to fail because when we fail, we learn from it. So that hopefully when you're overseas, you've already learned the hard lessons in training and you don't make those same mistakes. Right. Makes sense. So like looking back on, on, on your career, like what were some of the, I mean, like a bunch, bunch of questions for you. What were some of like your, 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 uh, your failures whenever you were that, that, that Lieutenant that you learned a lot from? Yeah, it was always against a uh, living, breathing, thinking opposition force up for, uh, so sometimes our, our, our live fires, you know, we rehearse, we rehearse, we rehearse, and we have to know how to use our weapon systems, have to know what effects they have, but you're not going against a thinking enemy. You're going against targets um, on, the, on the range. When you go up against a, a thinking op four and they do something you haven't thought of, it just adds, <laughs> it adds uh, um, some, some, some data for you to understand Hey, that's another human out there and they don't think exactly how I think. And so I have to think of more possibilities 
and I have, I have to outthink them. I have to, I have to outmaneuver them. How, how am I going to do that? Um, what, what have I seen? What have I seen the enemy do? And then how did I react or counteract to that? Right. That makes a lot of sense. So like kind of saying that name of, uh, of fighting thinking enemies and, uh, and being able to uh, outthink them. How do you, how do you develop that sort of, um, I don't know, that, that proficiency in thinking that you can think quickly and, and deeply on, on the fly in order to, uh, to get ahead of, of, of your enemy. Yeah. That, I mean, that comes from lots of different sources. You know, we can read books about different experiences. There's a great one called America's first battles. that talks about all many of the United States failures in their first battles in whether it's Vietnam or world war two or world war one. So there's, you know, there's that professional development. Um, then there's, there's simply, you know, sitting down with your team, whatever team level that is, team, squad, platoon, company, and using your assets, meaning your other human beings on your team, to talk through your plans and, and what, what people have seen that works or doesn't work. And basically, when you have time to, not, not rushing into these things. I mean, th we're talking about a life and death situations if, right. you're, if you're downrange. And so we want to make sure that we've, we've thought through what we think the enemy is going to do. We've thought through what we're bringing to the fight what our objectives are and then how to accomplish those makes sense yeah so like um like america's uh, first battles it was, seems like a pretty impactful book for you Have, is there any other books that like uh that really kind of made an impact on you and like helped shape your thinking uh, over the years there are uh there i like a lot of the, the non-military books i one i think of a lot is uh nicholas nassim talib's anti-fragile um he also wrote you may be familiar with skin in the game uh, but anti-fragile is really interesting as an individual that what he's trying to get at is our failures and the things that don't kill us typically make us stronger. So he, he refers to post-traumatic um, <laughs> post-traumatic growth syndrome. When you go through something traumatic and you're not just resilient, you're not just taking it, um, but you're actually getting stronger from it, from that, you know, whether it's a sports team and you lost a championship that probably stung and, and you learn from that and you're, and you're trying to learn, Hey, next year, how do I win the championship? What, what did we, what could we have done in preparation uh, for that game or that event that would have not led to failure or not led to that pain that you experienced from failure? Right. No, I, that's like one of my, uh, probably my top 10 favorite books uh, for sure. I really like the way that, um, he articulates uh, being anti-fragile, like being the Hydra that like uh, if, you know, somebody cuts off like, you know, a head of the Hydra, it just grows two back. And so you start learning how to use those, uh, you know, mal maladaptive events, those like those failures or whatever to uh, become springboards for like, you know, new opportunities and new growth. And, and it really, it seems to be not so much of like what, you know, but your mindset uh, going into things that like, no matter what it's going to, what's going to happen, it's always seems like, that you're going to be able to use it for good and just in, in what way is what you're trying to figure out. Yeah. You're, you're taking the threat and you're turning it into an opportunity. You know, something threatens you, some, something creates pain for you um, and you grow stronger from it some way, somehow, but you, you have to think through that and not just be a victim of that event. Uh, you have to, you have to see it as a chance for yourself to grow from it. Do you have like like any like stories or examples of that like from in your career, just you know, in in leading or, or in life or, or whatever, where where you were able to um, take an event that seemed to be like a an utter failure or something bad, and then turn it into something that actually like propelled you forward? Yeah, 
I've got some tough examples from uh, deployments, uh, being a company commander a few different times uh, during the surge. And there was a number of people I had to fire. And, you know, you don't see that a lot in garrison. You don't see that a lot stateside where, where army officers get, get fired because we're trying to help them develop and grow. But what I saw when we, because the, 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 um, <laughs> the, the odds were, they were too expensive. You know, it was the, the, the results were, were too important to continue with somebody who wasn't doing a great job. Well, what I found was most time you might remove one person from a squad or a platoon and that could make a huge difference. And so it, it you know, it sounds kind of negative. However, uh, sometimes it's what you got to do with life. Sometimes there's, there's a person just not pulling their weight or isn't capable or is, isn't wired the right way for that situation. And so sometimes removal, um, was a fantastic way of getting everybody else to improve their game. Right. There was actually, there's a pretty fascinating, um, uh, study that, that was done. Um, and they, the guy that wrote the study pre uh, presented it to, uh, I think, I think it was the, the Royal, uh, the Perusi guys, the Royal Unified Society or, or I forgot what the acronym is, but he talks about like, um, what was this, like, why were generals so effective in World War II? And he said that actually it was because they fired them on a regular basis. And, and he said that like back in the day, like getting fired wasn't like it was today. Like today, if you fire like a, a Fulber colonel or a general or, or whatever, that's usually the end of his career. And he said back then that wasn't necessarily the, the case. That like something would go go sideways, they would fire this guy, put him on a staff, and then you know a, a year later he might be back on, on in command again. And oftentimes they actually learned a lot from that whole experience and became even better. Uh, so it's interesting that that uh, that you bring that up. That like uh, that making those hard decisions actually is is just as good for the team as it seems to be for uh, for the individual that, that is the one that got fired. Yeah, we saw a lot of examples of that in the Civil War as well. Um, you know, Lincoln went through a lot of generals, but he recycled some of them, and they were sometimes uh, better the second time around from lessons learned or, or things they were learning about the war and, and, and how it was being fought and what was being effective and what wasn't. Right. Yeah, so, like, a, uh, I remember uh, sitting and talking with uh, with Trey Botten, who's now in uh, 101 uh, in Poland about like when to do this, like when 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 is it appropriate to uh, to fire somebody versus develop one? And this led into a pretty pretty heady conversation because it was like on one hand firing this guy like removes him out of the equation and it's, it's it could potentially be really good for the team. But on the other hand, you don't want that to be like your first you know kind of go to because you want to de develop people. So like we're like in your view, like where is that line between firing somebody and like developing somebody? Like when is what's too far and you know, what's you know something that like okay we can develop them instead of just getting rid of them. Yeah, I'd say the line when you're when you're stateside when you when you're here at home. Um, you know, if you're not doing something illegal, we're probably going to let you fail a number of times unless unless you're demonstrating that you just don't want to be there, that you just don't care enough. And then then I think that's that's the line like it, that you that the, the soldiers you're in charge of aren't important enough to you to, to work harder. I think that's a line. And then obviously that that line drops quite a bit uh, overseas if you're getting people endangered. Right, right. It makes sense. It's, it's more about like a attitude and and uh what, what's the you know the consequence of, of you know keeping you in, in charge is everybody just gonna be aggravated or could somebody potentially get hurt yeah i mean we talk about this right when you have uh anybody working for you most of the time we want somebody working for us that we have to hold back not somebody that we have to keep pushing 
if you have to keep pushing somebody all the time, they're probably not the right person for that for that type of job. And we probably just need to try to find them another job that might be more suitable for them. That makes sense. Uh, that's something that uh, I really kind of want to dive into. Uh, we have a series coming up on China, and uh, that's going to be like four episodes deep, and then one on benefits, and that'll be another like four episodes. But then after that, I really would like to get into like psychology of leaders. Like what is it, what makes somebody, uh, and you kind of touched on a little bit, like what makes somebody the type of person that you have to hold back versus somebody that's hesitant? Like uh, over the course of like your career, like what have been the key differences between those two people? Like what, what is it that makes somebody like super motivated and they just want to get after it versus somebody who's timid? Like what, what where's the difference? Well, there, I mean, there, <laughs> we're talking about a lot of personality types because there's also a lot of insecure people out there that, that will double down on aggressiveness um, in order not to show any weakness. And that can be more dangerous than anything. Uh, so those <laughs> folks, <laughs> pulling them back because they're, they're doing it for the wrong reason. Uh, they're being aggressive so they, because they don't want people to think they're weak. Um, you know, we want you to be aggressive because that's, you know, how to win, not because right. you're you're trying to hide uh, something for the rest of us. Um, but um, you know, you say timid. It's not that all of a sudden that, that everybody's uh, timid that stands in front of a rifle platoon. Meaning, like if they, you you may think they're timid, but then you. You, you talk to them more and, you know, maybe you're just trying to bring them out of their shell or maybe there's something that's holding them back personally, uh, something they're not confident themselves about for whatever reason. And so that, that goes into that mentorship, whether it's one level up or two levels up of, of just trying to, to get somebody to maybe come out of their shell and feel a bit more comfortable because not, not everybody's comfortable with public speaking, not everybody's comfortable standing in front of a formation, but when you begin to understand why you're for that formation and what the expectations are of you and that you know you could do it it doesn't take a superman um to lead people to make decisions sometimes that's just encouragement um sometimes that's a professional development kind of like we're doing right now and and sometimes it's just not going to happen and they're just not the right person right right okay so, so like uh like what i hear you saying that there's a lot of knowing your people and then like understanding who they are and what makes them tick to, in order to, to make the right decisions uh, about both, both their, their, their careers and like just how to, to, to develop them to be stronger leaders. Yeah. Half of, half of communication is listening. So we have to listen to what those subordinates are saying, not just talk at them about what they're not doing as well as we think they need to be doing. Um, so, you know, kind of get their story. And then, you know, when you listen, everybody's got a different story and, and and we're not, we don't know everything. So I don't have the perfect button to push for every single person I've come across. But when you hear enough stories, some of them do start to repeat themselves and you can start to use some of the, the tools in your kit bag that you've used before to be effective once again. And that's, that's just, you know, I don't have any other way of putting it. And that's 25 years of meeting lots of different people and the stories do sometimes or oftentimes do start repeating themselves. And so you can oftentimes use the same tool um, once you've seen it before to um, help the, the next person out. No, I'll, I'll affirm that just from a, from a chaplaincy standpoint, like, there's so many times that you'll have a soldier come sit down in front of you, you know, for counseling. And um, it's like, I've, I've counseled the same soldier before it with the same scenario, just their name has changed. And so a lot of times 
you you end up you don't want to necessarily become like a um, like a broken record saying the same thing to everybody over and over again. But there are a lot of very similar tools that you can employ uh, to help people kind of like get out of whatever you know position they're in, uh, be it real life or if it's just some something uh, that's like more mental. You know? um, and so it sounds like that uh, it's very similar to you know developing leaders to to lead troops that like you start to see the same type of you, you've seen a Brandon Sanders before you've seen a Trey Botten before or so on and so forth. And, and you know, kind of what makes them tick and how to develop them and steer them in the right direction. Is that kind of, am I hearing you correctly? Yeah. And I would say it's, um, it's similar for units. Uh, you know, individuals are, if I, if I give a unit, say a battalion, too many tasks, 25, 30 tasks that I want them to be good at, they probably won't be great at any of them because they'll be trying to do it all. But if I give a unit, or in this case, a person, maybe you know two or three things to work on that, that I think could be beneficial or useful for them, that's, I think, where we have more success, where we, we try to simplify it as much as we can over what we want you to be more proficient in. You just try to like help them focus uh, on something that's like... Instead of having them like, you know, it's kind of like you, if you try to defend everywhere, you defend nowhere. Is, is that kind of what I hear you saying? Yeah. And as a human, there, you know, there's always so much we can control. So you start to help the person identify what they can't control and to try to give that less, less angst or, you know, less stress and focus on what they can control, what they can change, what they can improve or what they can eliminate from their lives. Right. Right. That makes, makes a lot of sense. So like, um, you kind of mentioned like, like you know, you, you see individuals, but you also see units. Like what makes a, a unit a good unit? Like for, like if you're looking at, you know, you know, company A versus company B and company A is just killing it. What's company A doing it that doing that company B maybe just isn't? Well, when you, when you say company and not company commander, I mean, that, that could be a lot of things. But I would say presence by your leaders. Uh, your leaders need to be present, whatever echelon they're at. They need to be out there. They need to be understanding what their soldiers are doing. They need to be direct in their communication. And when I say direct, um, some people take that as you're, you're mad at them when you're direct. Being direct is being fair. Because when you when you see something that doesn't look right and you're direct and say, hey, I, I don't think that looks right. Why don't you try this? Or, or let's take another way of looking at, at what you're doing. Sorry, excuse me. Um, um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. Sorry, the phone rang. Um, <laughs> You're okay. Oh yeah, being being direct. Okay, so so if I'm if I'm not direct, if I'm as a leader, if I'm kind of like, well, Brandon, hey, Chaplin, I, I'm not sure. Um, you know, I I just don't really like the way you're doing your job. Well, that's not direct enough. That's that's very ambiguous and doesn't really help you to improve yourself. How I think you need to be improved. So, uh, as leaders, when we're we're direct in our corrections or in our teaching or in our interactions, that, that's being fair to each other, especially when you're writing somebody's evaluation and you're, you know, their career's in your hands. If I, if I don't tell you how, I, you know, what's important to me for a chaplain to do, that's not fair to you. And I've, I've just failed you. All right. Uh, that makes sense. Um, so like, uh, talk about like presence a little bit, because uh, that's something that, that I've noticed just over the years, like really good leaders just have a commanding presence. And I don't, I don't know if it's something that you can develop 
or is it something that's just like organic to certain people? Because I've I've seen some leaders walk into rooms and they don't even know the people don't even know that they're, they're there. But I've seen other people walk, walk in the rooms and it's almost like a gravity well got turned on that everybody like the side conversations quit and they just kind of like focus on that one person. And uh, it's it's really powerful when you see somebody do it really well, and especially if if you've seen somebody do it really like poorly. So how do you how do you develop that sort of like command presence to be able to command a room in such a way that like people know that you're there? Yeah, I I don't know the exact secret sauce, but I do know when you when you enter a room, and you when you're meeting people, you know you, you ask them their name, ask them their first name, maybe where they're from. You look them in the eye, you know, shake their hands. Just try try and make it a, a a memorable experience, even for a moment that you that you cared about them, and that, that was sincere. That when I looked you in the eye and I you know, ask you a little bit about yourself, that it, that it, that it meant something to me, not, not just to you. Like it should not be a big deal. Oh, I'll meet the brigade commander. Yeah. So what, but, but if I, if I value you, like I value all the soldiers and they know that they believe that, then I think they're going to perform better in the long run. But as far as, um, you know, another thing I think would be when you enter a room, you don't just gravitate to the highest ranking or whoever you think is the most important or whatever, you know, take some time with a little bit of everyone uh, when you get a chance. And sometimes it's easier in a group, um, just to go talk to some folks. If you're if you if you stumble upon a group of soldiers and they're in the motor pool, just ask them what they're up to, what are they working on, and and what's next, and how they like that, and you know if they're if they're getting everything they need, all resources wise, or you know what are they getting out of the guard, the army, um, but asking some genuine questions and then listening, and maybe taking a note too. I think that goes a long ways when you have your notebook out, and you, you write something down because you you actually plan on following up on it makes a big uh big deal right yeah I, i've uh i've noticed that with uh with soldiers I use, especially like uh, counseling if i if i turn around and, and you know they're griping about something in their unit or something and i write it down or maybe ask a follow-up question or two and and uh try to to do something it definitely makes them feel heard for sure like even if like you you don't ever intend to do anything with it or maybe you try and nothing comes of it the fact that like you actually like looked at them asked them a question and then made it made a note really does seem to make an impact because then it's somebody is actually taking them seriously enough to do something even if it's just write it down yeah all that and um and like i said the eye contact your your manners in um you know, not turning your back on, on folks on purpose for anything and, 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 and just taking a genuine moment to make a connection. And then, we, yeah, when you're talking to a larger audience, um, well, I mean, we're getting into like little TTPs right now, but, you know, not being a fidgety uh, person um, with your hands all over the place, like, uh, <laughs> like you're not in control of yourself. Right. Um, but but and then and then and personalizing it when you can maybe identifying a person or two from the audience to use as an example of uh, something that's going well in their unit and and recognition um, you know something we do a lot and we do it well in the army is we like to recognize performance whether that's a coin or whether that's an actual award or or, or promoting somebody in front of their peers or their their friends and family all that uh, goes a long ways i think towards that uh being present and it's not just command presence but just being present just being there being out in the field uh visiting armories um you know flying out to meet units that are far away you know i we came and visited you guys in poland and, right and that that was to see you guys it wasn't wasn't for my tdy vacation that was <laughs> to to see how you guys were doing and, and what the mission was and see what you guys were going to need when you got back Right. No, that, that makes that makes a lot of 
a lot of sense. It's interesting that that you uh, you bring up manners, and this is going to be kind of a curveball for you. But like, uh, um, so like I, I've been reading a lot this past year on just different generals. I, I read like JFC Fuller's generalship to be as a uh, kind of like a litmus test of like this is what like a, a military you know theorist actually says of what a general should be, and they went through and systematically started reading through different generals that had very different personalities. And two of them stood out to me. One was Robert E. Lee, and the other one was Scipio Africanus. And the the reason why they stood out is because here are these guys, especially Scipio, like they just have the power of like life and death over their whole whole formation. I mean, they, like just you know they could be tyrants if they wanted to. But there was like a story with Lee where um, he he did something that aggravated some soldier, some random private or whatever, it was, and it was something like really inconsequential. But he felt bad enough to it to like go find that soldier and then bring him like you know to his table at dinner and like so much as like set a chair out for him and all this other kind of stuff. And then like uh, with Scipio, same kind of thing to where um, he was you know, even people that that he conquered was always like try to be as fair as they possibly could with him and be very very polite. And those are two like Scipio never lost a battle and and Lee like you know by all accounts was an extremely effective uh, uh you know combat leader and uh but like it the i think the middle model of this like kind of like tyrannical warrior is not really the the true form of uh of somebody who's really effective in leading in combat because like you have here, here are these two examples of these guys being like excessively polite i mean to lee even to almost to a fault um and so it's just interesting to see that that, that uh that you kind of echo that same thing after your years of experience that like just being polite and fair to people it, it goes a, a long way at being effective in leadership yeah and your your messaging and, and where you message matters i'll give you a quick example of when i took command i brought all the battalion commanders in some staff and i had about three or four pages of um kind of do's and don'ts and things that were important to me and priorities. And one of them was, I didn't want to see light fighter tents. And a light fighter tent is an individual tent made for an individual soldier uh, that I didn't grow up with. And I said, I don't, I don't want to see those. Well, I didn't really articulate the why. And much of the why is because when, when we go to the field, I think it was interpreted as people, that I wanted people to be cold, miserable, wet, uncomfortable. And that wasn't the intent. The intent was that you have a collective experience where you could have a big tent, but you're together. You're together as a squad or as a platoon. You're not just looking at your screen uh, by yourself. And and I know you might think you get better sleep or whatever, but the shared experience of a couple of nights in the field or a week in the field um, where you're sharing night watch, security watch, fire watch, sharing stories, um, complaining together about the, the food or the weather or whatever it is. That was what I was trying to get at, but I didn't articulate that well. So it came across as being a tyrant that I just wanted people to be miserable. Right. No, that's, that's an interesting uh, reflection. Like, uh, it's interesting that, that how, like, you can mean one thing, and by the time it gets down to the lowest, the lowest guy, it can mean something totally different if you're not really – you know, intentional about how, how you, how you go about messaging it. So like, what, like, what are some ways or what, like, it's like, what were some techniques to make sure that like, you know, your intent is, I guess, is, is clearly communicated to the very bottom, uh, you know, part of the formation uh, that, that way you can avoid that, those sort of miscommunications in the future. Yeah. So obviously we, we talk to the battalions quite a bit, the battalion commanders, and we see what progress they're making, um, with, with some of the intent, um, you know, we have ways to measure some of those things in, in metrics, but it goes back to that presence. You know, we go out 
me and Command Sergeant Major Wickle, and we spend time with platoons and sections and squads, and and we we open it up and let them ask questions. And sometimes there's there's no questions, and sometimes there's questions about schools. But I did get a question about the light fighter tents from a, a young private, and um, you know, I paused for a second, and we 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 talked about you know, that shared experience of being together. And so he says, he articulates it for me. He goes, oh, so big tents are okay? <laughs> and me and Sergeant Major <laughs> smiled and said, yeah, big, big tents are fine, man. No problem whatsoever. Just no little tent. And th and that, that that you know, he, he said it better than I ever could have said it. <laughs> big tents, okay, little tents or not. It, yeah. It's kind of funny whenever you get it, uh, you know, uh, talk back to you uh, that way. Well, sir, we're uh, we're rolling up on uh, an hour. Uh, we're about uh, ten minutes out, um, and I, I you know, like you've been with me on a lot of these episodes. I ask I ask people like you know like what are you reading like or what's like you know what's a a good thing for the for them to uh, to be digesting uh, right now, especially looking at kind of the 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 training schedule coming up. Like what got what should guys be focused on? What should they they be reading? What should they be studying? Well, I I, I would say if if you like to read. Um, then you, I like to keep about three or four books going at the same time. And I like them all to be different. So I'm reading one by John Meacham right now. He's a historian. Um, and he's kind of writing about all the troubled times our country's had and all the times we've come through it. So that if you if you think right now is the worst environment you've ever seen politically or you know whatever you want to say, he's kind of painting some, some optimistic lines for... Um, how, how we've gotten through it before and how we're going to get through it again. And I can't remember the exact title, but it has angel. It's something called like our better angel. And it's kind of right. this, you know, uh, overcoming. I'm reading a book on some of the history of Thailand since the 1950s and American involvement. I'm reading that because I was at, spent uh, four trips in Thailand this year with the Royal Thai Army. So I'm trying to better understand um, some of their background and some of our, our partnership with them over the years. I normally like to keep a detective series going. Uh, I read this one called Nero Wolf, and sometimes I reread them. Uh, that that's just something lighter uh, for what I'm not going for for as heavy. And then, um, oh, I probably have some Civil War ones kind of lined up behind that. But you know, three or four books, uh, podcasts. I like to listen to stuff center left and then center right, and just try to get kind of a balance of of the news. Um, nothing that I would consider too extreme. Uh, but, you know, I think podcasts are great. Some sports podcasts as well, again, just to kind of uh, have a little bit of everything. Uh, so I try to diversify uh, so I don't get too bored, too serious about any one topic. Right. No, that makes sense. Like, would, Could you share anything, that, kind of the background of Thailand? You kind of piqued my interest with, with that because that's not something that I've thought to, uh, to really invest in. But, but the brigade is very invested in Thailand. So I'd be kind of curious, like, what like what are there any lessons learned there? Yeah, I just, I just um, you know, without getting into too sensitive of topics, just kind of the role of of the king mm -hmm. and the royal the royal Thai army and the, the different politicians and how they all kind of have their own role and how at different times different different factions are a little bit more powerful or or less powerful, and then so when you're talking to your Thai counterparts, you kind of understand their bosses and and kind of the some of the, the threats their bosses have seen in the past, whether it was communism or another country, um, different things that they feel threatened by and opportunities, meaning, you know, they're, they're fairly good friends with China at times as well. And we have to balance that. And we have to understand that 
you know, there's, we're not the only game in town as far as being a partner. Right. Right. No, that makes, makes a lot of sense. All right. Well, um, we'll start like, uh, we're... I got, I got, I got one more comment, Brandon. Go we, for we, it. we didn't get too much into my kind of some of my personal philosophies on, um, on, on leadership, but I'll keep this short. No, but no, we talk a lot about empowering folks and we, we, we like to decentralize and empower people at the lowest levels. We want to trust our subordinates to make decisions when we're not there to make good decisions, um, you know, to, to, to conduct good training or otherwise, or, or in a very dangerous situation. We know we can't always be there. You're not always going to have every echelon around that street corner, uh, that whole strategic corporal uh, story. But, but what we owe you as leaders is the training to become empowered. And so it's kind of like if I, if I said, you know, here's the gym, uh, you're empowered to go lift weights. You know, you, you would, if you had no experience, you'd go in there and you might, might hurt yourself. You might make some gains, but if I give you a trainer, and if I give you a trainer that kind of showed you a program and how to, how to lift those weights, how to utilize that, that weight room, then I could entrust you later to run your own weight room or to make decisions there without a trainer. And that, that's something really powerful that, try to get across the board at every echelon. And I'm talking about, you know, I call every one of us a leader. Down to the E1, you are a type of leader. I will, we expect you to make decisions at some point in the absence of orders and the absence of leaders or other leaders. And we trust you to do that. And if you make a mistake, you know, hopefully it's stateside and it didn't get anybody hurt, that's okay. You're going to learn from it and we'll, we'll help, you know, help you <laughs> see what you learned um, so that when you're in those more dangerous situations or more serious ones, and then you become a, you're older and older, wiser and wiser as a leader that, you know, Hey, my bosses, they, they trust me. And I love working in that kind of environment because I, I don't get micromanaged. I don't get told exactly what to do and how to do it. Um, and I think that's what makes better soldiers, better leaders, makes them happier. And we, all of us will get to see people figure things out in ways that we never thought of before. They will solve problems with solutions that, never occurred to us and we'll learn from it too right it kind of gets back to the whole uh any fragility uh again that i want i think one of the things that, that talib brings up is that the way that uh our our government system is 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 structured is that it's so fragmented that like certain things kind of get experimented with and the good things you know spread across the country and the bad things get you know kind of stuck in like one little area and then gets done away with before it you know produces too much damage it kind of sounds like like your personal philosophy is something very similar to that that if we empower everybody and everybody is kind of like at least tracking in the same direction then we will we'll learn from each other as different things kind of get experimented with truth to that yeah 100% well, sir, provided uh, there's uh, nothing else, then I think uh, we can uh, call that that an episode. Thanks for being on. I appreciate your time, Brandon, and uh, Cascade Rifles. And hopefully this report is spreading to some folks that aren't in the military right now and might be interested in our organization. This has been the Raven Report Podcast, the official podcast of the 81st Striker Brigade Combat Team. If you're interested in seeing if you have what it takes to join our team, go to our Instagram and click the link in the bio. Click the join link and connect with us.